Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of the Soft Skills Engineering Podcast. I am Jameson Dance. And I am Dave Smith. And we just wanted to start off by thanking you, the, the listeners. We have actually had what is to us a surprising amount of growth in, in the number yeah. of people. There are thousands <laughs> yeah. of people listening, and we do not have thousands of moms, so they can't all be our moms <laughs> anymore. Uh, so, so thank you. Thank you very much if you enjoy yeah. this and are listening to it. From the bottom of our Voltron heart. Yes. And there, there are a few ways that you can help us out if you are listening and enjoying it. Do you want to talk about those ways, Dave? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we're big into personal brand. So, <laughs> yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, I think the best thing that our listeners could do to help is to tweet about our show. And if you like it, tell people that you like it. And actually, a lot of you have done that. And that's been really cool. Mm-hmm. And then one other... Then, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I think you go ahead because I actually don't know what else they can do. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, this is the sum total of our podcast marketing knowledge right here in these 30 <laughs> seconds. The other thing you can do is rate us on iTunes and subscribe. Um, that publishes to some database which has some kind of rankings and all these podcast apps pull from the iTunes database. So the more people that subscribe and rate the podcast, the more the higher up it shows up and then the more easy the more easy, the easier it is to discover our podcast in just every podcast app. So if you do and that, it would help us out. The more you do that, the more money will go to Jameson so he can make his yacht payments. Yes. Uh, it's a model yacht right now. So payments are low. <laughs> but later on, I hope to have a slightly larger model yacht. <laughs> All right. Should we begin with our question? One of our questions for today? Yeah, kick it off, Dave. Okay. This question comes from a listener named Carmen. And the question is, how about an episode about mentoring? Why is it important? How do we do it? And how do we find the right mentor for us? This is a really good question. Um, yeah, it is. Maybe uh, maybe we should start off by talking about mentorship in our own lives. Have you had someone that you feel like is a mentor to you, Dave? Um, you know, honestly, you know, I've been working professionally for about 15 years and... I would say that most of those years, I have not had someone that I could look to and say, this is my mentor right now. Um, except for when I was first starting out as an intern, I was a tester at a large software company that I will not name because, you know, don't want to buzz market for them. Not that they need it. <laughs> um, this is and really I was a push tester. Them, push them over the edge to that yeah. next billion dollars of revenue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, I did have a mentor and he was, um, you know, like he really took me under his wing and showed me a bunch of good and bad things <laughs> that I could do on, on the job. And, um, uh, but aside from that, I really haven't had anyone that I could say is my mentor. Have you, Jameson? So what you're saying is no one can teach you if you already know everything. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I was just too arrogant to take a mentor. <laughs> uh, I think I had a similar story. I haven't had ever a formal mentor, but at my very first, uh, I'd say very first air quotes, real tech job, um, mm -hmm. there was definitely a developer there that was experienced and was smarter than I was, knew more, and that um, kind of put forth some special effort to help me. He, he was basically my manager too, though. So mm -hmm. um that's probably a thing we should talk about where the, the line, what's the difference between a mentor and maybe like a tech lead or developer manager. Mm -hmm. I, I think that those all can be one in the same. Yeah. Um, I think maybe the, the dev manager can encompass mentorship, but there's other stuff that they're also worried about. Definitely. And 
But here's the thing, like in my whole career until very recently, none of my developer managers have ever been technical enough or at least current enough to really act as a guide for me, for as a mentor for me, like at the time. Mm. Like I know that in their past, maybe they had, or, you know, for a lot of years, I actually worked for a company that had electrical engineers and software engineers. And for most of that time, my manager was actually an electrical engineer. Um, so he didn't really have the ability to guide me on specific technical details of my job. He could certainly guide me on other things like social skills and stuff like that. But um, I've never really had someone technical be my manager. So it sounds like you're considering mentorship as a very code level thing. Like here's how you write yeah, maybe good code, build, ha have good architecture and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, maybe that's too narrow of a view. I think that it can be more than that. It definitely seems like that's an important part of it. Um but just like learning how to work with a team or how to sell your ideas to people, those things like those seem like things that mentors could be could be good at teaching. Yeah, and they're also things that historically and stereotypically developers are not good at. So it's probably hard to find a, a mentor in our industry where you're like, oh, that person knows those things pretty well. Yeah. Um, Carmen asked, why is it important? I feel like we're just assuming it's important, but we haven't really said why. That's a good question. It, it, obviously, it hasn't been so important to me personally that I've actually tried to seek one out. So maybe maybe that, that question bears a little bit of exploration. I think, um, let's see. I, I have a little pet rant about software as a, as a combination of like pop culture and science where there's one part that's very fad-driven and fashion-driven and what's cool and then there's another part that's a body of actual empirical knowledge. And I, I think that mentorship can expose you to more of the, like the underpinning truths of software development um, and, and help hopefully uh, help you put into context the, the fashion and fad driven stuff that kind of covers it. So how do I say this? There, there are things that you can figure out yourself, but if you have someone to help point them out to you, you can skip a bunch of steps, I guess. Does that make sense? Mm. Like skip bumping into all these rough edges and like fumbling through the dark yourself. Yeah, exactly. If, if you don't learn anything beyond your own personal experience, then you're throwing away a lot of existing knowledge. And I mean, imagine if you had to invent math yourself to add, right? Like you started from nothing <laughs> and then you had to figure out counting and figure out Roman numerals and figure out the the arabic numerals that allow us to like do mm -hmm. more advanced math um you you wouldn't get anything done but because you can build on the existing stuff that took thousands of years to develop but doesn't take thousands of years to learn you can uh mm -hmm. you can progress more and i think huh, there's that's a really really good analogy oh thank you i just made it up mm. that's great <laughs> you're good at analogies ha. could you mentor me in better analogy craftsmanship no that's my only one <laughs> this is a one-time deal that was the peak so i have a tiny bit of empirical data about this i went to a meetup down in provo back in january and there were about 50 developers in the room and their experience was uh from very very young new programmers to pretty experienced i'd say on the high end maybe 15 years of experience and i asked them by show of hands how many of you have a mentor, someone who if I were to ask them if they were your mentor, they would say yes. And only one person raised his hand and I asked him, I'm like, was it a developer? And he said, no, no, this was like a, right out of a business program or something. And so the conclusion I took from that was that at least with that group, nobody had someone that they could say, this is my mentor. Um, and I wondered why that is. 
maybe it's like what you talked about earlier where they they hopefully had people that they looked up to and learned from but there wasn't ever when i hear the word mentor i think a more formal defined relationship mm -hmm. where there's maybe some regular time that you meet there's some there's some defined way to exchange information beyond you just kind of bump into each other at work or at meetups or something yeah, and i think the way that you establish that relationship is you give each other a mentos and then you know <laughs> we're now you're now my mentor <laughs> yeah um, that explains I, why i haven't done this before <laughs> you haven't gone through the mentos ritual <laughs> no so I, I i haven't ever had anyone that i've gone through the mentos ritual with but i have definitely been surrounded by people that i've looked up to and have asked lots of questions um and I've actually found it really beneficial to have someone outside of your current workplace where you can ask questions about how to navigate the dynamics in your workplace. It's great because you can be a little bit less worried about, you know, whether you'll accidentally throw someone under the bus or do something, especially if they don't know the people on your team very well. Mm -hmm. And I've had lots of conversations outside of work with other developers who work for other companies about my own company. And it's been really, really great. And I, I never really would call them mentor relationships. They were more like a peer-to-peer not like a client server. They were more like peer to peer. Uh -huh. You know, I would share with them. They would share with me. Yeah, that's. And the, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say those have been really valuable to me. It, it's really valuable to to see what is unique about your situation versus what is kind of common. That's that's one of the best things I feel like I've taken from just chatting with people in some developer IRC mm -hmm. channel or meetups or whatever. Is you mm -hmm. hear you kind of hear what the common experience is and it's easier to pick out weird things or exceptional things about your own yeah. experience. Yeah. I've had that same, I've had that same situation. It's really good. Um, and then also I just love hearing an outsider's perspective because they can tell you things that are really hard to observe about yourself. Like you say, well, I'm dealing with this situation this way, or I'm struggling with this, what's going on. And they'll, and I've had so many times where they'd say like, oh, well, it sounds like you are doing X or Y. And I'm like, oh, I am. You know, like you just can't see these things about yourself sometimes. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so it, it sounds like you can get that through the experience of your peers, but this is specifically about, about mentorship. And I agree with you that uh, there's probably some some truth and some stuff you can learn from an outside person that you won't learn at a job. Well, I, not at a job through a mentorship with an on-the-job person, but yeah, especially because there are so many more junior developers entering the industry, it seems like um, it, it seems like it would be helpful for the business at least if you hire a junior developer. Don't you want to have someone there to mentor them that they can go to yeah. with questions and and help show them kind of how deploys work and just kind of what the technical ropes are at, at your workplace. Do you think there's room think, for that too? Absolutely. And we've done that at my current uh, employment. We have a couple of interns that we've hired and we assign them to have a mentor who is responsible for them and just to make sure that they're doing okay and guiding them. And um, it was actually, I thought, a really cool opportunity for them because here they are, they're still in college, working part-time, and we gave them access to an engineer with years of experience. And it was like, ask them anything you want and just see if they can bring their experience to bear to give you something useful. And um, I think it was great. And people take advantage of those to differing degrees. But mm -hmm. um, all in all, I think it's an awesome resource. And I wish that every company would do it with people who are just starting out. Yeah. You mentioned people taking advantage of it to differing degrees. To me, that gets at this idea of um, pushing versus pulling, 
where mm-hmm. you can take it upon yourself to just like suck down knowledge from any source you can and you can find in your community or your workplace experience people that that you think will help you and then just bug them and most i think most people are pretty friendly and they'll also be flattered if you say hey yeah. i think you could teach me stuff teach me stuff yeah i think so um, i think so and they'll probably be like oh i didn't know that i was you, you'll give them permission Mm-hmm. to do that whereas before they might be like well you probably already know stuff and you know yeah probably someone who will just like tap you on the shoulder and be like it looks like you have no idea what you're doing let me tell you the right way to do stuff is not someone <laughs> not someone you want as a mentor anyways so in other words mentors are not going to come to you i think is what you're saying well they they might not i think there's definitely stuff you can do to to kind of pull mentorship towards you yes but, um what do you think about ha- specifically pushing it on people as in not even like the situation you described with the intern where there was someone assigned but it was still their job to kind of get knowledge out of this person Mm -hmm. um what if there's someone whose job is to kind of look at the 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 developer and and try and actively figure out things to do to help them is that Hmm. realistic and helpful where where they're trying to analyze what are they working on how are they what are they stuck on what can i do to help them improve is that just well, that, that's, too much effort? That sounds like a manager yeah. to me. Does that seem different to you? Um, hmm. Yeah, that is a lot of what a manager should do, I guess. It's it's more like the difference between mentorship and management in my mind is um, with mentorship, you're more focused on that person's individual progress and growth. And with management, your primary goal is probably the health and growth of your team overall. And then you have a bunch of a bunch of obligations to product and business and stuff. That's not how we've set it up at higher view. Like right now, if you're a manager, we actually call the title advocate and your job is principally to help the people that you're assigned to. Hmm. And there are other people whose job is to like manage the, the team's productivity and, and like feature roadmap and business requirements and things. Interesting. Um, but we have people who have specifically assigned. And so maybe I'm just coming at it from a slightly different perspective where what you described as a mentor actually is what we have in place as our manager That's program. Cool. But definitely not every place will have anything. I mean, yeah, you, you might yeah. just be thrown in and then people tell you good luck. Uh, so mm-hmm. in that case, that's, being able to... That's all too common, actually, yeah, I think. Yeah, I've, I've done that before to people, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> so I think the skill of asking someone for mentorship is, is valuable and will benefit you. Maybe we should talk about that. How do you, how yes. do you get a mentor? Um, oh, how do you be it or how do you how go do you, ask? How do you get it? How do you, how do you find a mentor? Okay, so if as a mentee, a potential mentee, how do I find my mentor? Yeah, you're interested in some kind of relationship with someone experienced mm-hmm. that can help you develop. Either it could be in or out of your company, I guess, too. So it seems like you have to be very careful when you select someone. So you should probably pick someone who you know well enough to say, this person will guide me well. Um, if you just go pick the smartest person in the room that you don't know other than they seem really smart you might be in for a surprise that's true because <laughs> teaching skill is not at all correlated with actual ability to do stuff mm-hmm. um i i know plenty of people who are amazing at getting stuff done and they just can't explain why or what they're doing or how to do it to other people yeah yeah they can do it but not teach it it's yeah it's pretty pretty common yeah um so I, I think you kind of have to select from your circle of people you know pretty well, um, which really limits the field. 
for how you choose, which means you should probably start by expanding your circle as wide as possible of people that you know, um, you know, in your friend circle, your work circle, your, you know, your technical acquaintance circles. You know, I'd probably say start by going to meetups and looking for people who seem to fit the, uh, the right mold for you. Mm-hmm. It's probably a good place to start. Yeah, and that includes personality for sure. If, if you're going mm-hmm. to be it's kind of a vulnerable relationship, right? You're saying, I don't know this thing or I want to learn this thing. So you want to make sure that you you could have a, I guess, a healthy interaction with, with this person. Yeah, and you, they probably need to be someone who will respect your confidence and know that, uh, that you can feel comfortable that they won't go and disclose your all your problems, you know, like because you're gonna you're, you're going like you said you're gonna be vulnerable. You're gonna this needs to be someone where you can say, hey, I'm stuck and I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn for help. Help me. Mm-hmm. And if they go and blab about how crappy you are, <laughs> you know that might not be the right mentor for you. Yeah, if they're easily frustrated or I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah, I have no idea how the formal parameters of a mentorship should work. I know that um, one of my friends has a, a like a very formal relationship with a mentor. I think they they met through a boot camp and I think the boot camp even helped set it up where it kind of introduced people to each other. Um, but what she did was set up just every week they meet for an hour and they talk about this giant list of questions that she comes up through the week and she kind of gets stuff from her mentor to work on. Um, they sometimes work on, they pair programs sometimes, but sometimes they just talk and then she goes off so and cool. does work on her own to kind of prepare for the next week. Um, so, so that's a very formal, it's kind of, that sounds like what my guitar lesson sounded like when I took guitar back in the day when I used to be cool, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> where it's, uh, so that's one model. Are there any other models you could think of? So you ask someone, Hey, can you be my mentor? And they say, yes. Like, what do you, what do you do after that? Uh, see, I don't know. I've never been in this situation. <laughs> um, I have no idea. I just, I, this is, I'm so naive when it comes to this. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the only way to do it then. Maybe try that. Just pick a time that you meet every, <laughs> every so often. Here's an idea. Yeah. That's, that's honestly about all I have too. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of sad, but I think this actually reflects the state of our industry where mentorship is just not something we focus on very much. It's not. Um, and maybe we should try to change that. Yeah. I think there are a couple st- startups i found that are it's kind of trying to build this network of people interested in helping and getting help but i don't think there's one central place you go i think your advice of looking in the community is good and if anyone by the way if anyone is listening to this and is interested in mentorship um feel free to bug me and i'm not uh i i can at least point you towards people that that Mm -hmm. i think are smart and willing to help that's cool. And and uh, Jameson would be happy to be all of your mentors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all of them. That's exactly what I mean. Uh, great. So I think well, I don't have much else to say about this. Do you have anything no, that's, else? That's, that's all I got. Great. Thank you for your question, Carmen. Okay. Question two, Jameson. I Hit will us. read it. How do stock options work? How can I tell whether an offer with stock options is any good? Well, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> They're stock options. <laughs> okay, so two things. First, the value of options depends incredibly heavily on whether there's liquidity. Um, what, I, what I mean when I say liquidity is what can you do with them? Can you sell them? If you are working at a publicly traded company and they give you options, 
then assuming that they're still a publicly traded company when you have access to them, then it's money, right? They gave you money. It's just giving you money later instead of giving you money now. And that's way different mm -hmm. than working at a startup that you hope goes public or sells someday. Um, yes. So, so yeah, if, if you go to Google, right, they, they give you X number of shares and then you just get to sell them later or hold on to them if you think mm -hmm. they're going to go up. Mm -hmm. um, if you join a small startup, you might get some number, and Dave will talk more about this, you might get some number of shares, but you don't know when you can sell them. So it's hard to value them. Yep. Uh, one approach or one response I often hear to this is to say options are meaningless then. Well, like your company is honestly probably not going public. <laughs> like statistically speaking. Yeah, like I'm sure it's great and is very successful, but the likelihood of, of you being able to cash those in is, is really pretty small. And so that leads you to say, well, they're worth nothing. I consider them to have zero value. I'll only look at the offer purely from like benefits and money. But if you do that too much, um, you can miss out on the the small chance, right? If you don't care mm -hmm. about options at all and you just assume they're worth zero, then you might not try and negotiate to get more options. And if you are lucky enough to work at a company where they do end up being worth money, you might miss out on a lot of value. So how do you balance those two things where probably they're never going to be worth anything, but if they are, like you want to do stuff with them? Well, you start by being able to predict the future, and that's number one. <laughs> okay. Uh, and at that point, options are the least of your... <laughs> anyway. Well, um, maybe let me give an example. I have a friend uh, who works at a company, a local company that recently went public, and he didn't really know anything about options and also just heard they're probably going to be meaningless when he started, and he started very early on in the company. And because of that, he didn't work to be compensated with options that reflected mm. his relative importance to the company at all. And oh, then man. they went public and he made way less than lots of people that joined after him that had a no, much bummer. smaller impact on the company. It's a good point. It's a good, it's a very good point. Um, but I, I, I don't know if you can tell, uh, you know, whether a stock option is going to be worth anything in the future, but, um, I just, there's no way to know that. Mm -hmm. I think, and you need to just accept that fact. Like, you know, if you're in an early stage startup, like you're just very unlikely to be able to know. Yeah, you're not going to know, but what do you do with that? Do you just say, well, it's well, worth zero, so I don't care how many I get, or, <laughs> or I don't care about figuring out how much of a percentage I have or whatever? Well, I'll say this. If you're joining a company, that, that probably means you believe in it, it to, some, to some extent. Um, and so, you know, you can probably take that whatever it took to get you to join that company, that was something. And, and your stock option value is probably related to that, you know? So, I mean, if, if you really think this company is going to be worth nothing, then you probably shouldn't join it in the first <laughs> place, you know? like what? So, obviously, you thought it was going to be worth something. So, let's just go on the assumption that your stock options are going to be worth something and then talk about, like, how to manage the situation at that point, you know, from that point forward. How does that sound? Uh, yeah, it, it sounds okay. I'm still just okay. torn in half by this because probably they're by, not. By and the if someone is trying to hire you um, and saying like, this will pay off your house someday, they, they, well, it really depends. <laughs> they that's, probably that's won't. very disingenuous. I mean, I, I've joined a couple of startups and I joined them precisely because the founder didn't say to me, this stock is going to be worth millions. You know, it, it wasn't like this sales job. It was like, look, mm -hmm. here's how stock options work. Here's our financial plan. You do the math. It, this is, it could work out or it could not. And I really appreciated 
my startups, I've been at a couple, they're, how judicious they were in explaining the situation to me. That um, I think that might be a local culture thing, though. I mean, if we both live in Utah and there's a very different approach to financing and options and, and mm-hmm. liquidity and stuff like that. I, my impression is in Silicon Valley, you join some startup that you hear about on Hacker News and part of the pitch is millions of dollars. Yeah, you're going to be rich. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Anyways, I, I tangented okay. us for too long Let's, on this. You have good information. I have like Share it. 10, 10 things to say about stock options. Hit me. Um, first of all, when someone when an employer makes you an offer and they say you're going to get 3,000 stock options, that number means nothing. You don't have enough information to compute the value of those. The other piece of the equation you need, the, the other big piece, there's actually a lot of other pieces, but the other main piece is how many shares are there? Right? Like you have 3,000 shares. Well, how many are there? There's 1 trillion. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, well, my shares are worth nothing. They're worth like fractions of a cent um, and never will be worth anything. Um, or they might say, well, I'm going to give you 1,000 options and there's only 10,000 shares in the company right now. That means you own 10% of the company. Right? That's a very different situation. Mm-hmm. And I think it's perfectly reasonable when you get an offer to ask, what percent ownership does this option offer represent? And um, I think if a company is not willing to tell you, that's a big red flag. Yeah. So ask the question. Mm -hmm. But even if you have 10% today, which by the way, 10% would be enormously high for an engineer who's not like the founder, Mm -hmm. um, your options can become diluted. And I don't mean diluted with a D, I mean diluted with a T. (laughs) Um, And what can happen is as investors come on to the company and put money in, they will expand the number of shares on paper that are, are issued and they will give the new shares to the investors. And if they, if there are, say, like I said earlier, 10,000 shares in the company and an investor comes in and says, we want to own 10,000 shares and we want you to have 20,000 shares total. Well, guess what? Your 1,000 shares just went from 10% of the company to 5%. You got diluted. And that's how that happens. And dilution is normal. It's a normal process of the venture capital investment process. Like it's just part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, share, you know, investors come in and they negotiate uh, how much ownership they're going to have. And the way that you, they achieve that ownership is by diluting the, uh, <laughs> diluting or diluting <laughs> the, uh, the current owners. So that happens. And I think the worst case I've heard about this is one of my former coworkers, his shares got diluted 80 to one. So they were, they literally got cut down 180th crazy huh that is pretty intense um i've also heard a a slightly different approach where there's some percentage of the company set aside specifically for employees options Mm -hmm. and then you get a number of shares that comes out of that pool yes that's very common actually instead of just like you get this number of uh how do I? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Well, or well typically, guy, so start stumbling over my words. But yeah. So what I've seen is that the company will set aside a certain percentage, but at the time that they establish that percentage, it becomes a fixed number of shares, mm-hmm. um, and then you're just as subject to dilution being in that pool as you would be if you were in any other part of the pool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, you're not. It's not like a, usually not a protected category it's not like oh well what you know the employee portion will always be 25 percent um and it will never shrink that's not usually the case yep. and they and at each investment round uh the board can choose to grow or shrink that pool so yeah that and that's that's pretty typical mm-hmm. um maybe talk about 
so I know you have a bunch of stuff to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, I think something really interesting would be how do you get money out of these? So you have options. Yeah. Like what, what, how do you actually turn them into money? Yeah. yeah that, it's a great question. So um, first of all, you usually can't turn them into money until uh, if you're a startup, you usually can't turn them into money until either the company goes public or gets acquired by another company that is offering to purchase the shares. And when you have a stock option, what you have is not a share that you can sell. What you have is a promise that the company will sell you a share at a fixed price. And so if the stock becomes worth more in the future, you have a sweet deal because you're sitting on a contract, a guarantee that the company will sell you a share at a price that is lower than the current price. So there's a two-step process. The first step is exercise your options by paying the company the agreed upon price for each option. And then they then give you shares of stock that's step one. Now you're holding shares in the company. Step two is take those shares and sell them to someone else, whether it's on the open stock market or to a company that just bought your company. Um, and then you will actually get cash. So two steps. I have a funny story about this. I, I have a friend who um, he had a bunch of options in a company and he just made this like spit in your palm handshake deal with a friend. Like I'm going to sell you a third mm -hmm. of my options for cash. And then he just got money from his friend in exchange for an agreement to give him some options. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that's super illegal, <laughs> but, but he did it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Was this like a real company? Yeah, it was like... a real company. And it actually ended up selling. So uh, it, it did work out for both of them. That seems pretty rare. <laughs> that's pretty shady. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. He's just like, I think those are going to be worth some money. I'll give you some money right now for him. And. Yeah, my friend went out so and let's, bought a car. That probably won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I generally wouldn't encourage someone to enter into that kind of deal. <laughs> yeah, and and that puts a lot of trust in your friend. <laughs> yeah, seriously, <laughs> seriously. So um, how much are my options worth? Like this is actually a knowable question, or the answer is knowable, um, but it, it's really complicated because not only do you have is it does it fluctuate based on the market value of the shares if you were to actually exercise your options but there's also this thing called preferred stock versus common stock have you heard of this mm -hmm. distinguish this distinction mm -hmm. <laughs> so preferred stock means that there are owners of the company who own shares who typically are the investors who in the in the event of a company's sell a uh, sale or an IPO they get paid first at like an agreed upon price per share. And then after they take their money and go buy their yachts, then the com whatever money is left from the sale or the IPO, that then gets distributed to the common stock uh, shareholders. And so um, if you say like, well, I've got 1% of the company and the company is worth a million dollars, I should be getting 10, uh, what is it? $10,000, right? Is that, I just did math in public, which I don't like to do usually. I have no comment because I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> That sounds right. Let's say, a let's say that's 10,000 bucks. I think it's a dollar. <laughs> One Turkish lira. <laughs> um, so let's say you, you expected to get $10,000, but you see the thing is the uh, preferred stock said, no, 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 we get 900,000 first. 
So we're going to get all that, pay out all the preferred stock shareholders, and then the remaining 100000 gets divided up among all the common stockholders. Um, and so depending on how your company has been financed, there are terms like this. And so you, to know the answer to this question, you actually have to go to like your CFO or finance, you know, head of finance and ask this question. And the answer is really complicated because it depends on the sale price of the company. It depends on how much money they can raise in the IPO. Um, and so... <laughs> Um, it's, there's not like an answer, like my shares are worth five bucks per share. Like it doesn't ever work that way. It depends on many factors. And so usually they'll have a spreadsheet that says, well, if the company sells for this, the common stock will be worth this, the preferred stock will be worth this. Um, and then they'll have like all these different scenarios they can run. I know the first time I found out about this, I was like, this is the biggest con job I've ever heard of in my life. <laughs> Oh, That's really? insane. <laughs> how <laughs> you mean the preferred stock? Yeah. How, how come stock? they can just say we get more money and then they get more money. How does that work? Um, well, I mean, if you showed up with a, with $10 million to invest in the company and the company says, I want that $10 million. And they said, well, there are some strings attached. <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It It's just, that's where the, that's how the, the power in the relationship is balanced. But the nuance of that is not usually communicated to people who get stock options as an employee incentive. Yeah, it kind of makes the the whole you'll make millions pitch a little less. <laughs> you'll make millions. Yeah. Um, can you talk about, isn't there some kind of number attached with this? I've, I've heard the term like 2x liquidation preference or something like that. Does that mean that they're guaranteed, the investors are guaranteed at least twice the amount of money they put in? I've seen it done a couple different ways. Uh, I've seen it done where the investors have a cap of a certain number, like 3x, where after 3x, the money goes down to common stockholders. Um, and I I've, I've, think I've heard of a minimum as well, where like the preferred stock shareholders will get paid out minimum of 2x before common stock gets anything. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, that This is like so nuanced. You'll just have to ask the people who have managing your company's finances. So I don't know. Huh. Um, you just, I like, I literally went as deep into the deep end as I can swim, and you just tried to push me a little further. Sorry. Well, I appreciate, <laughs> I'm drowning out here, Jameson. I appreciate you saying these words because they're smart words. So I think the takeaway is options can be worth something. There are an infinite amount of caveats. We didn't even talk about taxes and how, Ugh, uh, and, yeah. and, and, and windows to exercise your options. Like sometimes there's a, I think 90 days is pretty common. 90 days after you leave the company. That's the window yep. you have to buy your options. That's and if right. there's no IPO or sale in sight, then that's a huge gamble. It might be thousands of dollars you have to put in to these options. Mm-hmm. They might end up being worth zero. Uh, and then there's something to do with taxes, right? How you have to pay oh. taxes on them before you can sell them or something. We probably don't have time to go into the taxes, but suffice it to say that number one, Jameson and I are not tax attorneys. <laughs> <laughs> and, and number two, the taxes on stock options can get really complicated and super surprising, and you can end up owing tax even though you didn't make any money or before you've made any money. Like You can end up owing tax just by exercising your stock options, which means you bought the share. That's that step one of two. You just bought the share. You spend money, and now you owe all this tax um, because the IRS thinks, yo, you just made a ton of money because you have uh, value in these shares you own now. So I highly recommend people consult with a tax professional yep and then maybe one last thing to talk about is the vesting schedule you you don't just get them all at once right yeah not typically what kind of vesting schedules have you seen um i think one year cliff 
and then vesting over four years is pretty i think that's the standard so yeah so that's the that's the only one i've ever seen that means that if they say you get three thousand shares uh that's a hard number i'm going to change it to four thousand yeah, shares four, yeah four thousand <laughs> <laughs> then you don't get any shares at all until you've been at the company for a year and then you get a thousand shares so it takes which means at the one year mark you could actually buy one thousand shares yep right and but before that nothing yep and then the rest of the shares uh, sometimes it's monthly, sometimes it's quarterly. They'll they'll basically vest over time for the next three years. So if yep. you are there less than a year, you don't get anything. If you leave partway through that four year, you just get a, a percentage of them. Um, and that's yep. to encourage you to stay and and make sure that those are valuable to the company and and that you help produce value. So I have I have two more terms I just want to throw out. Okay. So that people can be familiar with them. The first term is strike price. Have you ever heard that term, Jameson? I have. I'm ready to learn what it actually means, though. Okay. <laughs> so uh, earlier we said that there's two steps to actually turning options into cash. Step one is you buy the share, and it's at the at agreed upon price. That that is called the strike price. So that's the price at which you're allowed to buy the option. And then the second thing, the second term I wanted to, oh, is that, by the way, is that what you thought it was? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll claim <laughs> that I knew that already. <laughs> you probably There's no cost on. to that. <laughs> <laughs> the second one is a capitalization table or cap table. And this is the thing that if your company is awesome, they will show it to you. And if you go to your head of finance and say, hey, I want to see our cap table. They'll know exactly what you mean. You don't have any idea what it is, but they know what it means. And uh, I didn't. I didn't know what it was either for years. And um, this thing is the thing that lists how much of the company all the investors have, and how much is allocated to employees. Um, and it it just tells you all those breakdowns. And it is the thing that ultimately governs what the uh, um, payout will look like for you as an employee who owns stock options. So cap table. There you go. Now you can just drop those words in casual conversation at a coffee shop and people will think you are big <laughs> and important. <laughs> well, I saw the cap table last week. Oh, my strike price is five <laughs> simoleons. And... Okay, great. I think we, we answered that question. And so one more thing, if you are interested in reading more, there's a ton of information about stock options out there on the internet. Um, I found this post by Julia Evans really helpful. Uh, I love her blog just in general, but this is one about stock options it goes into a lot of the stuff we talked about in detail and then it also has cool. a lot of links to everything else so with everything we mentioned there's like an infinite depth of more information yeah. and this can yeah. kind of get you started on some of that so we'll post that this has been notes. like a breadth first exploration of stock options and then now you can go depth first yep 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 great well i think we answered that people helped people saved <laughs> people <laughs> Oh, man. And by the way, if you're interested in working for me, I will grant you 1 million shares. Of your of your non-existent company? Well, it exists now. You can have a million <laughs> shares. I just won't tell you how many there are. Who who was it? Um, was it Ben Horowitz who wanted to make light of the startup valuation process? And uh, he like offered He sold investors. one share for like yeah. 0.5 cents or something. That was definitely yeah. the 37 Signals guys. Yeah, yeah they, they had a $10 billion valuation because they sold some tiny That's percentage right. of their company for $1. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, weird stuff uh, can happen with this. Well, awesome. if people want to find out more about us, how do they do that? You must visit our Twitter page. 
which is at softskillseng. And from there, if you subscribe, you'll be notified of new shows as they come out. And that's also how you can reach us if you want us to uh, butcher an answer to some question that you have yep. that you would like. <laughs> we, we will try to answer it to the best of our ability. Great. Thank you all for listening, and we will catch you next week. See ya. See ya.